process is a series of steps. Again, you that have been there on a, on a Wednesday will remember the steps that enable us to develop and establish the revelation into experience. Maturity is established revelation which empowers us to have a sustained spirituality that influences events and people around us. I want to see answer to prayer, don't you? The only way you're going to get that is by this sustained spirituality that will have an influence on the people around you, which means we have to do what I'm looking at here. We've got to come out from among them and be separate. We have got to come out from the world's way of doing things because we will never influence anything while our thinking is the same as the world out there. My heart sinks when people tell me about the missions that they're going to hold. And they've planned it 12 months in advance. God is a planner. But he don't tell me 12 months in advance or even 5 minutes in advance what he's going to do. So often these are the, the, the plans of man's mind and they yield about that much. With no fruit that's lasting. So when we fail to see the regular upgrade that the Father is holding out to us, we settle into a place where we become vulnerable to circumstances that surround us. We lose touch with our identity and we're prone to disillusion. He talks about living in the present future mindset, which means you don't live in what's happened in the past. You live in the present and in the future. One way of looking at it is that you've got this rope tied around your middle and there's a boy out there in the sea and with your, the rope attached to it and you are pulling yourself inexorably towards that goal. Now the question is, what is your goal? That is really the question. Because if you've got a wrong goal, if you've got a wrong object upon which your focus is, you'll find yourself off-centre in the whole of your Christian walk because if your goal is other than being a father pleaser and being the beloved of the bridegroom you're going to find yourself off over there somewhere it's like a pot on the potter's wheel it's swinging and it's making a misshape because it's not central so your focus and your object are the two things that you need to have a look at what's my focus today where am I looking uh, God dropped something into my heart this morning that um, it's a half-baked revelation because I've only just he's only just given it to me really we know that uh, Graham says here at the end of this thing that um, there is we are we need to be prepared for what's coming uh, because um, we are heading towards the biggest fight of our lives and we need more than a National Guard mentality. We must raise up warriors, champions and special forces. Our training needs to be upgraded. A true image of God must be restored and our own identity in Him must be recaptured. If your goal is anything other than God Himself this morning, you have got a wrong goal and you are likely to be useless in the day of battle. 
because what the Lord showed me this morning is that the upsurge and the flood of occult that is out there in the world is not something that would generally trouble Christians because we know it's wrong so we wouldn't get involved in it but the subversion that Satan is releasing into the body of Christ is seduction he's seducing us with our bodily needs and appetites with our need for comfort people companionship and the seduction is his and it is real and what we are looking at is ungoverned desires an ungoverned desire is an original sin not under the Holy Spirit's control so anywhere where you have got an ungoverned desire you have got an entry point for the enemy to play havoc in your life and it starts up here with what you're setting your focus and your mind on governed desires are that which have been brought under the Holy Spirit's control in other words you have unsurrendered desires and surrendered desires I know that some people are wrestling with strong sexual temptation this morning so where is your object? What is it that you are after? And why is it that the enemy is so easily able to pick you off any time that he likes by whispering into your ear, oh poor old Jew, you need this. After all, you're human. Yeah? I'm not going to apologise for being strong this morning because I tell you there is a battle on for your soul it is not that you are going to lose your salvation but the battle is on what he's offering you is what he's always offered and it's instant gratification of your flesh we all have normal appetites and desires even me surprising I said to Joyce last night, I know the girls will never believe this, but at my age I could still pull a bloke if I wanted to. I mean I'm being right basic, down the ground, I could still do that. No problem at all. And what's worse is I know when a bloke is looking at me in that way at my age. And I'm thinking, give it a break, I thought I was past all that. So you see how much we have to bring these ungoverned desires in under the control of the Holy Spirit it is not impossible what is needed is a surrender of that area of your life and if it's a hard one constantly because he will constantly bombard you in that place and he will wear you away until you give in and there are two stories that I, I, uh, I'm not even on my notes I knew that <laughs> what's going to happen this morning the two stories if you want an example of ungoverned desires I'll show you two uh, one is 2 Samuel 11 which you will be familiar with and here you will see how ungoverned desires can lead to murder because an ungoverned desire wants what it wants 
Uh, it's the Eros serpent. I've got some pictures of this. If you might like to give out for me, someone. Thank you. That eats itself. It's the most. Everybody. Every time they look at this, the girls say, "Oh, I ate that thing." Thank you, dear. This is the Eros symbol, the Greek symbol of a serpent eating itself. Now you don't need a degree in theology to know that who came to Eve in the garden and you don't need a degree to know what was in the centre of the garden. It was the tree where there was a test command on it. Don't eat. Test commands are something where God says, don't do that, please. But they did it. And the tree was in the centre of the garden and guess what? We are inherit an old nature that is totally self-centred and it is a prison because it seeks all the time to fulfil its own desires in the way that it thinks it needs them met and that is the key I will do what I think to get what I want so here we have David thank you and the sin of adultery it's headed up here now it came to pass in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. He shouldn't have been there. He should have been doing what kings do in the spring. But he stayed and he tarried and he delayed. David, it says in the King James, tarried in Jerusalem. And because he tarried, he got his eyes on something he shouldn't have looked at. And that was Bathsheba. He's wandering on the roof one night and he sees uh, a UFO, an unidentified female object out there bathing herself. So he goes and he asks about her. He sends for her. She has not a lot of choice. He lays with her. She conceives. And this brings forth murder. Because then somehow or other he's got to stop Uriah the Hittite finding out because Uriah's a loyal man to David but David has done this thing and as I said when the, when the object is wrong the focus is wrong and now he's got to get Uriah out of the way because Uriah is such a, a noble man he won't lay with his wife and cover what's happened so the only other answer is murder isn't it so you know the story and then if you move on to 2 Samuel 13, that is an example of an ungoverned desire. Uh, what, 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 to 32, I won't go the whole way, but this is incest now in David's house. Sowing and reaping, the sins of the fathers being visited on the sons, Amnon and Tamar. Amnon's ill. He's laying in bed sick. He's wasting away because... In verse 2, he was so distressed over his sister Tamar, he became sick, for she was a virgin. And it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. He's got a lust problem. He's sick with it. You may know the story here. His mate Jael of Deb says, I'll get a scheme and I'll get her for you. And he does. Takes Tamar by force. And the moment that he's had her, he's repelled by her. Anybody ever been there? Held out? Held out and held out and then eventually the boat 
pushes you one too far, you give in and he does not want to know anymore. Next week he can't even remember your name. It's, it's dishonouring to our bodies to give them away. Not to mention the Holy Spirit who's got to go on these junkets when we go. So we come back to what is the focus and object of your desire. I want to give you two words I'd like you to write them down. The first one is shall. Shall. Never had a a word jump out of you? Have a look at all the shalls in the Bible. But the shall I'm looking at is Philippians 4.19. Pardon? S H A double L. Shall. 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 I shall. You shall. He shall. He will. He shall. Philippians four nineteen, and uh, which says, "And my God shall supply some of your needs." Thank you. <coughs> and my God shall supply all your needs. All of them. Not some of them. All of them. And this includes your sexual needs. If you're awake long enough. But the important one is that. There's another one. T-H-A-T. That. I'll get into the message in a minute. Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. But I press on that I may hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And it is that which is at stake when we slip into immorality. It is that that Christ has laid hold of us for. Our that goes out of the window when we go into immorality. Because he has got something for you and the that that he has for you is at stake. This is why, my lovely ones, there is a battle on for your soul. This is not just you fancying a bit on the side or whatever it is. This is a satanic strategy to take you out of the race, render you powerless, cripple you, Take away your crowns, your rewards, your inheritance. There is, I cannot begin to tell you what is at stake when you allow your ungoverned desires to rule your life. Funny little story I read this morning made me laugh so much. Young man with a sexual problem goes in to see the psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist starts off by showing him three pictures. The first one he shows him is a, is a square, completely black. Can you tell me what you see? Yeah, I see uh, a couple having it off under the blanket. So the psychiatrist thinks, uh, try something else. Um, so he gives him a circle all blacked out. What do you see? Oh, I see a couple having it off under a beach umbrella. He rolls his eyes heavenward and says, Triangle, try that one. Well, a couple under a tent, isn't it? 
doing it again. And the psychiatrist says, uh, you do have a problem, young man. He said, no, I don't. It's you. You've showed me all those lewd pictures. <laughs> Focus. Object. I mean, I just creased up when I saw this this morning. The Lord's just given me all of this this morning. Joyce will tell you, last night I was, I was restless. I was, my mind was somewhere else. I couldn't get to grips with... I knew there was something more that God wanted to do uh, and it all piled out this morning so focus and focus is what I must have it's eros eros and it is a downward spiral um, I've got a little song come to me this morning none of you will remember it I don't suppose it's too too old you made me love you, I didn't want to do it, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and that's about the size of it. God is wanting to move us from Eros to Agape. And in Jude 21 it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. There is a charge there for us. We have to do the keeping. And the way to keep ourselves is to focus on the proper object, not on the object of our desire, physical desire, which is springing out of our eros, but on him. If you focus on Jesus and the Father, you go into agape. If you focus on what I must have and I want, you go into eros. And eros is much, much more than just physical uh, attraction, sexuality it's much more than that it's everything that w I want to satisfy myself in and it becomes a prison God lets us out of prison when we're born again and we're busy scrambling to go back again we're just like the Israelites I remember the garlic and the cucumbers they don't remember the slavery and the sweat and the making bricks without straw they remember the garlic and the cucumbers what are they going into? Flesh. Satisfy the tummy. So, having said that, one more scripture before I actually start. It's Demos in 2 Timothy 4.10. I think that's the right one. You may know it. Demos has deserted me, having loved this present world. We have got to be on the lookout all the time. Here was Demas. There weren't many that went with Paul, but he chose this boy to go with him. 2 Timothy 4 For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia is saying the other two have gone there and there but this one is gone. There is a systematic assault on your Christian walk whether you realise it or not. Demas has set his love on the world. Jesus offered a spiritual freedom and Demas chose a natural one. So there are some examples of what happens when you choose to 
Let your desires be ungoverned. I want to say to you, God does not love you any the less. You do not lose your salvation. He can't, he's not angry with you. He's just so sad that it is so easy to draw you away from the things of the kingdom. Because once you get a grip of the kingdom, you won't ever want to let go. Someone had this revelation from the Lord and I wanted to read it on Monday night but I went to it but I didn't do it. But here is, you've got on the one hand what God wants to give you. On the other hand, earthly things that you need to choose against. My beloved treasure, you saw my Shekinah glory. You felt my spirit pour into yours. The scales were lifted from your eyes. You asked to see me and you saw. I gave you a glimpse of me, of my love for you, of my safe place. I gave you insight to where I live. You felt the purity, the holiness, and my house, the kingdom of God. I've come to the conclusion in my Christian walk that those that God pours out the, the, the most priceless gifts, the most revelation, are the ones that are in most danger. Because in his kindness and his goodness, he pours out. I'm thinking, I'd like some of this. And he's saying, you don't need it. Be because of his love, he will give you something like this. And if it was right to be jealous for gifts, I could be jealous for gifts, but I'm not. Um, because there are people so gifted in the prophetic that I've just systematically over the years watched drift away. I mean, they can open their mouths and prophesy like a good one. I have to grind it out like, you know, it's just not like that for me. But I don't need it. And I thought, Lord, you're so kind. He gives us as much as he possibly can to keep us with our eyes on the right focus and the right object. Because he knows the stuff of which we're made and he knows what we're going to need to keep us on the straight and narrow. Now you know why earthly things cannot be mixed with heavenly things. Why holiness cannot be tainted by unclean things. They are worlds apart. My hand will not allow you to be defiled by lowly things that bear no fruit. There is no comparison between what I have for you and the things you think you need. I want you to know me of how my plans for you are only for your good. Don't settle for what the flesh offers you when I have so much more more than you can imagine got a visual aid Joyce brought it in last night was it last night? she went gleaming in the orchards because we were allowed to once they pick the fruit we can glean first thing undeveloped fruit something stopped it stopped its growth she said I think I've got you a visual aid 
You get to choose whether you have a bunch like that or that off the same tree. Look at that. And it's hardly, the stalk is hardly holding it. It's so heavy. So what are you going to settle for? Flesh, spirit. The fruit of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit. If you live according to the flesh, death. You live according to the spirit, life. I mean, you couldn't get much clearer than that, could you? That will imprint itself on your mind. <laughs> when you're about to do something, you know, to your think pairs. <laughs> now your spirit has seen me. Allow yourself to trust in me. Give yourself to me. There it is. Under the Holy Spirit's control, it's all about abandonment. Any area of your life that isn't abandoned to him is up for grabs to the enemy. How long are you going to be food for him? Dust is his food, did you know? On your belly you will go and of the dust you will eat. We are dust. What's he eating off of? If we're in the flesh, he's eating us. Mange, mange. He's eating. Give yourself to me and I will show you a life not many have travelled. Have no thoughts... What a promise! Yes, please, I'll have some of that. Have no thoughts of yourself and I will take you places in your heart that nothing in this world can. The I am is here and will never leave you. Rejoice in my name, O heavenly child. Be at peace and know that I have begun a great work in you and I intend to finish it. I held this up before the Lord yesterday. I said, Father... This is your decision about this person and you're going to finish it. I'm calling you to have a look at your word here. Sometimes we just have to do that. You may not realise, you know, that in a way God has given you to me to be my sheep so that I have, I have a responsibility to, to pray you back when I see you straying off. And um, if any of you think that I don't have CCTV in my bun, I do. Like any good mother, I can see at the back of my head and you don't have to tell me what you're doing. I know what you're doing. The wool cannot be pulled over this ewe's eyes. <laughs> my rest will bring you great joy and happiness. So rest, my child. You cannot win your own battles. The key always is to sink back into the arms of God into his spirit. We are all beset by the temptations out there of one sort or another. Wherever your actual temptation happens to be, God is your answer. Don't try. Uh, the, the other night when I was preparing this, I was beset by the most horrendous pictures, pornographic thoughts, uh, bodily sensations. I thought I'd go potty because and I, but I'm old enough in the Lord to realise what it was all about. It was because I was preparing this. And there was an onslaught, you know, call yourself pure, have some of this. And I said, I, I, I tried to battle it and the Holy Spirit said to me, give it to me. I've taken it on the cross. So I did. It went instantly, just instantly and it didn't come back. Father, I give you all this filth. 
So if anyone has a problem in this room with pictures that come in front of their faces when they don't want the thoughts that come in, bodily reactions that they don't want, give it to him. See, he's not something to be ashamed of. He knows how we function. He made us sexual beings. But he made that to be under control, under the control of the Holy Spirit. So rest, my child. You cannot win your own battles. Am I not big enough? I will teach you and I will show you everything you need to know. I will take you from glory to glory. Who's going to exchange that? Didn't it say in Romans they've exchanged their glory? Israel exchanged the glory of the We can exchange our glory. For a moment's gratification we can exchange our glory. It's real. I will show the time and place for the work I've assigned and planned for you. Now you have some idea of my power. Rest and allow me to work through you. Give me what I ask. You know right now I feel like a lion. Because there is a roar rising in me and it's not my roar. It's the Lord roaring over his people to keep them from the devourer. He's roaring over his people. He's not going to let the devourer have them. Give me what I ask. Do not be afraid, for I would not have called you out of darkness to abandon you. Lift up your eyes to me, O child, and all will be given to you. Believe, believe, believe. It's time to change. It's time to run the race. It's time to decide to go forward. Take the baton with a single mind. I am with you and I am for you. I was once in the position of giving to someone that came to help us the mantle that I carried. And I sat at the dinner table as the Lord was saying, place your mantle on her. Because I thought, what's that? Where's that leave me? You know, the old ear off, kicked in straight away. So I did as I was told to do. Unfortunately, she never made the choices to actually bring her into being the one to whom I could hand the baton. So there is a way in which I'm constantly looking to see who God has got me, who have I to hand this on to? Because we have to hand the baton on to the next generation or it'll all die out. And I thought of this in the night actually, I, I was awake during the night and I thought of that and I thought, she just never made the choice. She was with me for a year. Almost lived with us. So I had the opportunity, as she said afterwards, of a lifetime. But she threw it away. Why? Because she could not let go of her own desire to meet her own needs in the way she wanted them met. And as far as I know, she stood in the same place. Because bless her heart, she could not um, allow herself to let go to God and let him decide what was best for her. I am with you and I am for you. The kingdom work is ahead. You notice it's not the church work that's ahead. There is a kingdom emphasis 
coming out in these days that, that is far higher than church. Jesus did not come preaching church. He came preaching, teaching, talking about kingdom. Once we get above the whole issue of church and see from a kingdom perspective, we become a kingdom person, not a church person. And that gives us a wider perspective, a greater love for everybody because it says in Corinthians, doesn't it, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts because we see from his perspective what's going on and the, all the infighting and the silly business that goes on with us, we understand. We're just like squabbling children, really. But kingdom work is ahead and my army is putting on its battle dress. How many of us would join up in the army and then on Monday morning when we didn't like what the sergeant major coming round getting us out of bed would say, I'm not coming up, sergeant, I'm not getting up this morning. Fill in your own blanks. Get ready, my child, for my hand is upon you. This is like a benediction, isn't it? And I will deliver you through every situation by glorifying my name. I love you, I love you, I love you. Fill your heart with songs of praise. And know on this day the heavens were opened and poured out on you. Bless you, my child. I'll have some of that. I'll just stop for a moment. It thrilled my heart. In renewal, teaching disappeared for a while. People wanted less exposition and more impartation through the laying on of hands. Of course, these are not mutually exclusive and are essentially interdependent. For a while, though, preaching with impartation prevailed. People wanted signs, wonders, power gifts and personal ministry above all else. Only the truth can set us free and keep us free. Power gifts can release us into experiences of freedom, but it is the Word and the Spirit that enables self-government to occur. And this is why I'm so hot on the Word being got into people when they've been set free. They will never have the freedom to walk in. You can get set free and lose it again five minutes later. Because this needs to be renewed by the mind, of, by the by the word of God. Um, he says, "What we are receiving in a meeting has to be established in life. It's our circumstances, not our meetings, that become the essential training ground and proving ground of our freedom and maturity." So what you learn here will become flesh upon you as you make the choices to walk in what God has got for you. Someone stopped me just now and said, I am angry. And I said, because you've been robbed? Yes. The truth is showing her she has been robbed. Beloved, that's what this is all about. You's been robbed. Daylight robbery. And you's walking into it thinking it's your idea. There is the shall and the that. He shall supply all your needs. You do not need to go digging your own cisterns. He will do it. My people have deserted me, it says in Jeremiah, the stream of living water and have dug for themselves broken cisterns that don't hold water. 
I think the one cry in the body of Christ right now from God is, I am enough. What is it you want? I can do it. I was praying the other morning for you guys. And I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. Like this I'm saying to you, you know. He said, I can. Why don't you have speak? I said, never thought of that. <laughs> Truly never thought of it. So you don't stand a chance because I'm actually praying for you. Naming you before the throne. You know what I'm praying for? <laughs> I'm praying for him to ignite a passion for him in your hearts, the like of which you have never experienced. Yes, yeah. That is what I'm praying for. I'm naming you before the throne and saying, Father, passion. Passion. Not the passion for what just turns to dust. Doesn't matter what it is. Trinkets, houses, cars, men, clothes, whatever it is. Dust won't last. Let's put our minds on things above. Let's get our treasure in heaven, eh? Oh look, I'm reaching for my notes. I've got a couple of books that I want to recommend. One I can't remember the title. But this one is an absolute winner. Love, Sex and Lasting Relationships by a guy called Chip Ingram. Absolutely brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. And I've got a large um, section of it that I hope to maybe get round to uh, probably after lunch now. It's how to know if you're in love. Twelve tests. I mean, absolutely amazing. Because he, he pulls out of this something that has happened to me recently. Um, got a phone call. Oh, well, she's met someone on the internet, yeah. Uh, she, being in her 40s, he's 78, he's got 11 grandchildren, but he's looking for a single mother. He would be, the 78 and 11 grandchildren. Uh, and she's in love. She hasn't met him yet, but they're going to get married. And I'm thinking, the ground is shaking, I'm losing my stability here. Somebody is. Anyway, the, the meeting duly came to pass and the, the two lovebirds met one another and of course it was love at first sight. All the chemistry exploded. He has a, has a delightful way of saying it. I'll read it now. It's absolutely hysterical. Um, and um, uh, they are now going to get married next year. I thought, good, that gives us a chance for everything to cool down and her to see that it's actually infatuation if it's anything at all or as I said to someone <laughs> infatuation, desperation and perspiration really in that order there we go so this guy here this is a this is a bit from and you can get this book from um, Walk Through the Bible I'm sure you can get it in, in uh, Christian bookshops it's a baker book um, but Walk Through the Bible is where I got it and, and it made me laugh because he he um, describes it now. Okay, ignoring completely all notes, we go for it now. Remind me if I don't get round to it that that there is a thing called trading, trading your inheritance. Uh, I mean, Adam did it in the Garden of Eden, and loneliness is not sufficient grounds for trading your inheritance. Check it out. 
I've got some brilliant quotes from reading bits and pieces. One I read yesterday was um, when Moses came down from the mount with the, um, it wasn't ten suggestions that he came down. <laughs> okay, this is um, Chip Ingram. Do you remember the first time it happened? You caught one another's eyes and then you looked a second time. Something in you wanted to glance a third time, followed quickly by a fourth lingering look. You didn't want to stare, but something irresistibly drew you to that other person. When you were finally introduced, your palms were sweaty and you hoped no one noticed the increased perspiration under your arms. Your heart began to race as an exhilarating but unfamiliar feeling swept over you. You were suddenly afraid to say anything because you knew if you opened your mouth that would flow an incomprehensible babble. The experience was exciting and terrifying at the same time. As the other person began to speak, you felt drawn like a magnet to a stealing got. You didn't know her or where she came from, but something about the way she looked and the aura that she projected triggered an unexplainable feeling of euphoria and excitement. Her smile or a tiny gesture became instantly engraved in your mind. You knew you would never forget her. For an instant, you wondered how you would describe this moment to a friend. Then a phrase came to mind as if by magic provided by countless hours of exposure to the Hollywood formula. I think I'm falling in love. You've been there, I've been there. No doubt we all agree those are thrilling moments, especially if we sense a similar response from the other person. But is it really love? How do you know whether what I just described is the beginning of the greatest relationship you'll ever experience on earth, or simply an episode of infatuation? How do you know if you're really in love or simply physically attracted to a member of the opposite sex? So he gives 12 tests. If you're a single person, your eyes may be a little wider and your mind has kicked into overdrive. Imagine 12 legitimate tests that can help you discern if you're really in love or not. Well, they're very good tests and they really do work. But this chapter is not just for single people who are dating or those who are engaged. It will also help anyone not in a significant relationship to learn what kind of person to pursue and whom to avoid. If you're married and you're tempted to say, I've been married for 27 years, so what's it got to do with me? Please think again. Failure to understand the difference between love and infatuation goes well beyond finding the right person. If you understand the radical difference between love and infatuation, you may set yourself up for devastation in your future years of marriage. And what he's saying is that we need it as grandparents, parents, to be able to tell our children how to know. So when they're going to come to you for counsel, they need this sort of thing. And then he goes into, into 12 um, questions. One is the test of time. Love benefits and grows through time. Infatuation ebbs and diminishes. Infatuation may come suddenly. We find ourselves thinking, boom, I'm in love. That's actually infatuation. We probably ought to make an effort to avoid speaking about falling in love. We can fall into infatuation. We can fall into lust. But we most truthfully grow into love. Love develops out of a relationship of caring and core personal character traits, not our instant impression or perception of another person. It goes on to more. Then there's the test of knowledge. 
Love grows out of an appraisal of all the known characteristics of the other person. Infatuation may grow out of an acquaintance with only one of these characteristics known about the other person. Something about the way they look or the way they function may give you a very distorted idea of their full character. Frankly, a glance or a chance meeting can act as a kind of trigger that sets off the chemicals. I never forget a girl in Paddockwood, Christian, came from a Christian family. She backed her car up in a car park and bumped into this guy and the next thing I know is they're in bed together and she's pregnant and I'm thinking, how did that happen? Well, having read this book, I can see why, you know, across a crowded car park, this was. So he's talking about now how when couples come uh, to get married and he asks them a few things, I say, give me several examples of personal character traits that you have come to appreciate in the other person with illustrations. Uh, give me a detailed introduction of your mate, as if, if you would think, and you would think, he says, they were introducing a stranger. I get cliches. He's got a great sense of humour, or she's always there for me, or an embarrassed silence. I often say, you know, I've stopped asking couples why they're getting married. I mean, there's only one answer, right? And they, they smile knowingly. I continue, the expected answer is because we're in love, they nod. That's what they're planning to say. Now, if almost all couples say that, but at least half of them end up getting divorced, then that's not a very compelling reason to get married, is it? I mean, he's gone into this thing, hasn't he? They look at each other, wondering where this is going. What good reasons, I ask, other than saying we're in love, can you give me to explain why you're getting married? Unfortunately, most couples seldom have shared goals, shared vision or shared purpose for where they expect to go together. Infatuation believes in a make-believe world where the object, if we come with the object, of our affection is perfect, flawless and completely devoted to us. Infatuation is happy to know very little. Love longs to know well. Love wants to study the other person's needs, desires, dreams and hopes because it wants to do everything to make them a reality. Love is interested not in what it can get, eros, but in what it can give. The development of a relationship ought to be like an undergraduate degree in which the other person becomes a multifaceted and fascinating study. Marriage then becomes a lifelong pursuit of a PhD in knowing and understanding your spouse. How well do you expect to know the person you marry? Or how well do you know your spouse? I was married for 25 years. And I can honestly say that after that time when I divorced my husband, I did not know him. I never knew who he was. I never knew who he was. I found out to my horror, he never swore at all indoors. I was the one that let rip with a stream of a blue streak from time to time. Never swore. After I'd started divorce proceedings, I found out what he was really like, and his, the swearing he did was worse than mine. But it was always kept for work. They had two lives. One way we, he was Jack the lad at work, or he was one of the boys at work, and at home where he was just absolutely proper. I never knew him. And the only thing I missed, and this is terrible, 25 years of marriage, 
The only thing I missed him for when I finally divorced him was the fact that he used to see to me car for me. And that was a bit of a nuisance. I had to go and put the air in my own tires and get the car serviced. I mean, 25 years. Anyway, the test of love is other person-centred. Infatuation is self-centred. You know what infatuated people are all caught up with? Themselves. Eros. This is lovely. I watched a roommate in college discover the power of infatuation for the first time. The Greeks were right. He went a little insane. When it started, I was happy for him because he was shy and didn't have many relationships. It was surprising to hear him say, Oh, Chip, she's just amazing. I've never been in love like this before. About the tenth time he made a version of that statement, I asked, So what's her name? Do you know her? Oh, I haven't actually met her yet. I'm still working up the courage to find out her name. Well, how do you know you're in love? I asked him. Well, ma'am, she walks across the campus and you wouldn't believe the feelings I get just watching her. This went on for days. He eventually managed an introduction. Then our conversation took a new tone of urgency. He would stand, half-dressed in our dorm room, asking somewhat confused questions. Chip, what do you think looks best? That shirt or this one? What about these shoes? I've got basketball shoes. I could wear them. I might see her today. Every time we talked about it, it was about how he was going to look, how he was going to come off, what kind of impression he was going to make. Do you hear Eros here? Infatuation is almost always more obvious in someone else's life. And I could see he was suffering from some kind of fever. What was his focus? Himself. That's not love. That's chemical exchanges of the brain. <laughs> Infatuation. In your most important relationships, to what degree is your attention focused on what you are receiving from them? And to what degree is your attention focused on meeting their needs? Do you think about how you're going to feel and look in a relationship or about what you can do to make that person look and feel great? It's eros all run through. So the first, the fourth test is a test of singularity. Genuine love is focused only on one person. An infatuated individual may be in love with two or more simultaneously. And he tells the story now absolutely hysterical. During his first year of college, he was in love. He didn't know her very well, but this was the one. Uh, and then he ended up being in, on a, a Christian basketball team that travelled all around South America. At our first stop in Puerto Rico, we played a good game. After the game, I met this really nice girl who was a missionary there, and we ended up going on a very romantic picnic together. I can still remember the colour of her dress, her dress. I also remember I had feelings. I found myself attracted to her. My response caught me by surprise because the feelings were similar to those I was having to my girl at home. Then we flew to Peru. Our missionary host had a daughter. She was cute. You just must have to look twice. She was like that. I instantly fell in love. Suddenly I couldn't remember what my girl at home looked like. <laughs> anyway, there were half a dozen of these. We visited five countries in a few weeks and I ended up in, in love with five girls plus the girl back home. Do you know what I learned? I learned that what I felt had practically nothing to do with love. It was all about chemicals. I could be attracted to a lot of different people, but that wasn't love. 
my infatuation switch was simply stuck in the on position. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm not young anymore. Oh, it's a criminal time. Ah, oh, but lest you think infatuation is simply a harmless emotional game played by the young, consider the impact of infatuation during one of those seasons of marriage when life gets hard or dull. 